Well, good morning and welcome to the Oaks Church. Uh, happy New Year or Happy New Year's Eve. It's exciting that we get to uh, kick off the new year or thinking about the new year together as we worship, get to end this year together. Um, if we haven't met yet, I'm one of the pastors here. want to thank you if you are a first-time guest uh, for being with us this morning. I want you to know that we have a gift for you that we would love to give you before you leave today. Uh, you can stop by our Connect table, and we would love to just thank you, get to know you, and figure out how we, we can best serve you as a church family. Now, if you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and find Luke chapter 2. Uh, over the past few weeks and even last week as we uh, kind of did an online um, devotional for you to watch in host homes, we've been focusing on Luke chapters 1 and 2 and looking at the birth narrative of Jesus. So go ahead and find Luke chapter 2. We're going to be finishing that. Um, if, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we would love to gift one to you today. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible, Luke is in the New Testament, so just flip to kind of the, the last third of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and you will find it there, the giant two, and then look at verse 39. We're going to be in verses 39 through 52 today. Uh, now, I wanted to celebrate a couple things with you before we dive into the meat of the sermon, uh, and that is where we're at currently with the OCB, the Oaks Church building. Many of you guys know that uh, we've been working toward that. We purchased a building in April, and uh, our team has been working hard to be able to occupy that building. Uh, so we're kind of eyeing the beginning of February as potential move-in date. Now, uh, I say that with bated breath, right, because I've, I've given you a couple dates, and uh, based upon inspection, or whatever's gone on, we've had to push that back a little bit to make sure that the building is safe and move-in ready whenever we get there. Uh, but just wanted to kind of give you at least two pictures to update you uh, as to where we're at. The first one is a building or a picture of the building with the sign. Um, now, this might not seem like a big deal to you, okay? Thank you, AAA. Um, but this is, this is the first permanent sign that the Oaks has ever had in our almost seven-year history, and that's that's pretty cool, right? Uh, that's like in the ground. You can't you can't just like you know like break one of those poles that snaps every week over here in like the, you know, if you're on setup team, you know, uh, this morning me and Brandon were joking. I was like, hey, I'm going to put up this sign. He's like, that one doesn't have a pole. And Marissa's like, hey, maybe you can borrow the pole from this one. And we're like, okay, so, all right, we have a permanent sign now. No poles necessary. Um, the next picture is of the current auditorium. Yeah. Um, so, New lights, uh, new carpet went in this past week. We're getting ready to move chairs in, sound system, all this kind of stuff. So um, grateful for you. Uh, if, you're, if you're a part of this church family, you've been an integral part of us uh, getting, getting things ready to be in this church building. We're really excited uh, to do this. I also want you to know if you're here and uh, you're a first-time guest or you've been coming for a couple weeks or months and, and trying to you know, figure out if this might be your church home, what, a, what an exciting time to be a part of our church family. Uh, I know that myself and our other pastors would love to be your pastors, and uh, the, the people that are in this room would love to be your church family. That would be a, a huge privilege for us. So uh, excited for the days ahead, certainly. Um, now, one more thing I, I wanted to uh, just kind of direct your attention to is the Oaks Bible Reading Plan, okay? So Brad said, 
maybe there is a, a spiritual goal that you have for this next year. Well, this is, I believe, the third, maybe fourth year. I think it's the third year uh, that we've given this to our church family. And uh, I highly encourage you to do this reading plan. There's nothing inspired about this reading plan. There's nothing sacred about this reading plan. But I want to encourage you to have some sort of plan to hear from God every day, to make the voice of God the loudest in your life. And this is a great way to do that. Now, let me say this. Maybe you're like, man, it seems like a lot of reading every day. I've never really done that before. Well, I've got great news for you. Grace Annapol, our communications director, has, uh, has done a lot of work to get the Oaks Church app to where it is so that you can listen to every day of this reading plan every day. You click two buttons and then it's playing. And if your commute is 15 minutes or you're walking to class, like you're able to listen to it in that amount of time. Uh, maybe you'd say, you know what? Uh, I've never read the Bible daily, but I wanna start. Well, the great thing about this plan is there's an Old Testament section, there's a Psalm like every other day, and then there's a New Testament section. Uh, so maybe you just wanna start out by reading a Psalm and by reading the New Testament section every day. And then next year, you're gonna read the Old Testament portion and the New Testament portion together. Uh, maybe you've never read the, the Old Testament all the way through, and so that's what you wanna dive into this week, and you say, you know what, I'm gonna read a, a couple chapters of the book of John on, you know, on Saturday so I can have some New Testament, you know, as the year goes on, but I want to read the Old Testament all the way through this year. Whatever it is, I just want to say, hey, this is a tool uh, that we want to put in your hands because we believe that uh, it is a great thing to be in God's Word and to hear His voice on a daily basis. All right, now turning our attention to Luke 2, uh, we have the opportunity to hear this story most likely from the perspective of Mary. We're told at the end of this uh, chapter that Mary was storing all of these things up in her heart as we hear about this you know, narrative of the young boy Jesus. Uh, we know that Luke got all of his information as a gospel writer from eyewitness accounts. And so kind of putting those two things together, we're thinking uh, Mary was a part of the New Testament church. Luke was, uh, uh, you know, kind of compiling eyewitness stories. So is this coming straight from Mary herself as we read this account? And it's kind of fun to think about that reality. Uh, as I was reflecting on this, I was reminded of some of my childhood stories or the, the stories we tell in our family. I don't know about you, but uh, over Christmas, all of our extended family got together. So it's, you know, me, it's grandparents, it's our aunts, uncles, cousins all get together. And whenever our extended family gets together, we just tell stories that have happened over, you know, the, the generations. And so one of those stories uh, that Abby had never heard of was uh, about my uncle, who whenever he was about 11 years old, he skipped church and uh, went into the woods behind the church and tried cigarettes for the first time with one of his friends. He said that he was there supervising to make, make sure everything was safe. Uh, but judging by my grandma's face as he was telling the story, that's not how it all worked out. So uh, long story short, before the sermon was over, they had set fire to the woods that was next to a Christmas tree farm. And by, before nightfall, they had burned down five acres of a Christmas tree farm. Um, so kids, go to church instead of smoking cigarettes, right? This is, this is the moral of the story. Uh, now, here's what you should know about my uncle. He's a great guy. He's a God-fearing man, uh, possibly due to the response of, of my grandmother uh, in that incident. But it's, it's, I mean, we tell these childhood stories. My, my mom told the story about how I taught uh, my three-year-old cousin to drive a golf cart 
before he could reach the pedals. And so my solution was I sat in the floorboard and pushed the gas while he steered and I trusted whatever he had going on, right? I, like, I would love to go around the room and just hear your stories just like that. Uh, we, we could all tell childhood stories. Well, what we find in Luke chapter 2 is a story of 12-year-old Jesus, and I'm sure that as Mary reflected on, on just the childhood of Jesus, uh, she had great stories. Now, granted, they did not have the same kind of mischief that maybe some of our stories have. He was perfect in every way. He was sinless. But at the same time, there's this beautiful mystery as we think about the incarnation of Jesus, that as the man Christ Jesus, God in the flesh, eternal God, grew up. And, and what happens in this passage is so unique because Jesus, even at 12 years old, is going to describe who he is. He is going to tell us his true identity. He is going to proclaim that he is indeed the son of God. And he is going to tell us that in this story from his own 12-year-old lips. So in Luke 2, 39 through 52, you will see that Jesus declares he is the son of God to reveal his true identity and to model a godly relationship with the Father. If we think somehow that this story about Mary and Joseph losing Jesus at the temple is like about parenting, we've totally missed it. Uh, if, if we think that this story is about anything other than Jesus at this young age revealing that he is the Son of God and thus the Savior of the world, then we miss the point of this passage. And so what is happening here, Jesus is revealing that even at this young age, that he knows that he is indeed the eternal Son of God taking on flesh and that he is about his Father's work in the world. Now, as I said before, uh, the book of Luke contains more information about the, the childhood and infancy in this stage of Jesus' life than any other book in the Bible. And the unique thing that we will see today is that as the book of Luke has progressed, we've experienced what theologians call progressive revelation in regards to who Christ is, right? And so there was this moment in which the angel says to Mary, you will have a son and you will call him Jesus because he will be the savior of his people. And then you continue to go on and the angel appears to the shepherds and say, says, hey, I bring you good news of great joy, right? There, there is this child who has been born, go find him. And then as we talked about last week, we get to the scene where uh, they take Jesus to be dedicated. And Simeon has this prophecy in which he says that the, the consolation of Israel, the comforter of Israel has come. Salvation has been seen by my own eyes when he lays eyes on Jesus. And then Anna begins to prophesy and she sees this. But what happens today? It, this, this truth about Jesus being the son of God isn't coming from someone else's lips. It's not coming from the voice of an angel or uh, an elderly prophet. No, he declares with his own mouth, I am the Son of God. And what we will find in this passage, passage is three actions that correspond to the identity of Christ. Uh, so let's read Luke 2, verses 39 through 52. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, that is Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. 
And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word. Uh, We're grateful that... You have revealed your son. Uh, We reflect on this reality around the Christmas season, but recognize that it holds eternal impact upon our life each and every day. And so, Jesus, would you reveal yourself now through your word? Would you speak? Would we have ears to listen and hearts to understand? We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, The first action that corresponds to Christ's identity is that Jesus celebrated the Passover as the Lamb of God. Jesus celebrated the Passover as the Lamb of God. Now, what we find in uh, verse 39 through 40 is kind of this summary statement, because what we saw last week is that Jesus was dedicated at the temple. That was whenever he was around, around six weeks. And then whenever we get to verse 41, we see that Jesus is 12 years old. And, and so what is taking place in kind of this 12-year gap? Well, Luke tells us that his parents performed everything according to the law of the Lord. Then they returned to Galilee. They went back to Nazareth, this town that uh, many people thought was unnotable. And, you know, even one of Jesus' first disciples said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so that is where Jesus would grow up. That's where his parents lived. And during that time, the child, being Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, whenever Luke picks the story of Jesus back up, we find the family of Jesus on this dusty road to Jerusalem, and we find out exactly why they're going there. They're going to celebrate the Passover, and that's what we read in verse 41. His parents went to Jerusalem every year to celebrate the Passover. Now, why did they do that? Well, there were three feasts that the Old Testament required every Jewish male to go into Jerusalem for. Uh, There were some exceptions, maybe uh, for people who would not be able to go, but for the most part, every Jewish male was required three times a year to go to Jerusalem to worship for a particular festival. Uh, Now, the unique thing is that Mary, as a Jewish woman, was not required to go to these festivals. And what we read here is that every single year, Jesus' family went to celebrate Passover. And so, this kind of gives us an idea of even Mary devotion to the Lord, that this family was a family that desired to worship the Lord and to obey His command and to go into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover together. 
Now, this time of year, Jerusalem would have been absolutely buzzing. Uh, it was about an 80-mile journey from, you know, where they lived in Nazareth to get into Jerusalem. So it would have taken three or four days. And I would just imagine that as they're drawing closer to the city and people from other towns are kind of starting to be on the same road that, you know, I mean, young Jesus, like, like seeing through his 12-year-old 12-year, 12 eyes, there's just kind of this excitement, right? I mean, this is not a big city, uh, but 200,000 people would gather in this city to celebrate a festival like the Passover. And so we're told that they go, Jesus is there. Uh, it would have been a time of year where because the, the business owners and you know, trades people know that they can sell a lot of things because of all of the pilgrims coming in, they would have you know, had their shops set up. And I mean, just imagine all the excitement as he enters into the city. Now, why would Jesus go this year. It wasn't required for children to go. Perhaps this was the first visit that Jesus took on Passover to Jerusalem. We're, we're not for certain, but what we're told in verse 42 is that whenever he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. Well, what's, what's the custom? Uh, the, at, at 12 years old, it is the year before it is kind of the, the religious rite of passage for a young Jewish boy to become a man. Uh, and so around 13 years old, they would celebrate something that is similar to like our modern day in Judaism version of bar mitzvah. And so the Mishnah, which was one of the texts for Jewish life and practice, said that around you know, 11, 12 years old, a father should bring their son to Passover because at 13, they would become officially a son of the commandment. And so Jesus at 12 years old, he's, he's, even as the son of God, he's not an exception. He's fulfilling every part of God's law. And so he goes and he is going to learn how to be one who makes his own sacrifice for Passover. He, he's going to learn how to be a man in the house, how he, is going, uh, how he is going to be faithful to the commands of God. And so he is taken this year. Now, uh, another kind of interesting Passover fact is that uh, the elder son, we know that Jesus was the firstborn son. He had other brothers that were born biologically. He was born of a virgin. He's the eldest son, the firstborn son of Mary. The eldest son held a privileged position at the Passover table uh, because whenever all of the elements were present and they were gathered around, I mean, imagine them there in, you know, they're staying in maybe a family's house, a relative's house, and they're gathered around the Passover table. The eldest son would look to the father at a specific point in the meal and say, what does this all mean? And I, I can just picture Joseph thinking about what his father said and what his grandfather said, leaned in. He said, well, let me tell you. For 400 years, our people were enslaved under a wicked pharaoh. And they cried out to God day and night, and God in his mercy heard their prayer. And, and God, with his mighty arm, brought plague after plague upon Pharaoh. And his heart grew hard, and he would not turn. And there was a tenth plague that God brought upon Pharaoh. And he said that the angel of judgment would pass through the city. And that death would come upon each and every household. But a substitute could be given a lamb could be sacrificed, 
And those Jews, those Israelites who loved God, if they, if they sacrificed that lamb and took that blood of that lamb and painted it over their doorpost, when the angel of judgment passed by that house, although there were sinners just the same inside, he would pass over and there would be no judgment. Our God is merciful, Jesus. I mean, could you just imagine the, the children around the table, eyes wide as Joseph tells this story? He says in the, in the sunset, our, our ancestors were behind those doors that were painted with the blood of the lamb. And we slept tight knowing that our God is faithful. And the next day, we, our, our ancestors woke up. There were cries all throughout the city. And yet our people were able to go free, led by Moses, but ultimately led by our father, God. I mean, just soaking it all in. And then right there in the middle of the table was a lamb sacrificed as a symbol of God's redemption to be celebrated generation after generation, an act of worship. And Joseph had put that lamb on the table because Jesus had seen that exact same lamb carried into the temple earlier that day. The, The lamb that was now roasted on their table was the lamb that they had likely brought into the city. Maybe they purchased it whenever they they were there. Maybe this is a lamb that Jesus was quite familiar with that they had brought all the way from Nazareth. You see, whenever it was time to celebrate the Passover, uh, the men of the family, they would would all go to the temple around three o'clock and they would bring the lambs that were there to sacrifice for Passover, the lambs that, that would be served at their Passover table that evening. And as hundreds of men from the family gathered in, you know, think about the lambs just, you know, making their noise and their hooves are, are, are scuffling on, the, on the, the blocks below them. And then this, this throng of people was silenced when a ram horn was blue, whenever it was blown. And then the priests... 24 divisions of priests. There was typically only one division in the temple, but on Passover, there's 24 divisions of the priests come and they've got these bowls, these gold and silver bowls, and they come next to every lamb. And then at that moment, the lamb was sacrificed. Joseph, taking careful attention to make sure that Jesus knows how all of this is unfolding on this day. And then just silence, the sound of no more lambs throughout the entire temple courts. And then, and then the, the priest takes some of that blood that they collected in the basin and they go to the altar and they begin sprinkling it, right? sprinkling it as an act of worship, atonement for the people that had gathered there to shed the blood of this animal. And then the father would, would carve the animal. He would wrap it back in, in the skin of the animal and he would throw it over his shoulder and they would bring it back that night. That was, that's what Joseph did, and that's what Jesus experienced as a young boy. Now, now imagine Jesus experiencing all of that, and yet also being the fulfillment of being the Passover lamb. The next time Passover is mentioned in the Gospel of Luke is in Luke 22, 14 through 23. Whenever Jesus gathers his disciples around the Passover table, the same elements present, the unleavened bread, the wine, the four cups. And yet, what does he say? He establishes a new covenant. Why? 
Because Jesus had come that Passover not just to recount the exodus of God's people out of Egypt, but to become a new exodus for all who would trust in him to be led out of their slavery of sin and the bondage of death. Jesus had come to be the permanent Passover lamb, not to be sacrificed every single year, but to be sacrificed once and for all, for all who would believe. And so Jesus holds up the bread and says, this is my body. This, is, this has been about me the whole time. This is my body, which is broken for you. This cup, this is the cup of my blood, the new covenant, that you would find your life in me as the one who has shed his blood for you. You see, two decades after Jesus celebrated this Passover with his family, he would celebrate Passover and established the Lord's Supper with his new family, the disciples and all who would trust him as Savior and Lord. And what does that mean for you? Every single week, whenever we gather, how do we end our time together in the reflection on our word? We take the bread in our hand and the cup in our hand, and we were reminded of God's provision for us in the sending of his own son. Think about that for a moment. Whenever the blood that the priest collected from that lamb was spattered on the side of the altar, was, was the sinner who made the sacrifice thinking, did I hold my knife the right way? Did I, did I do things the right way? No, they looked at the sacrifice and the blood that was shed for them and the priest who spattered it upon the altar and they knew my sins are forgiven because that is what makes me right in the eyes of God. And perhaps you walk in this morning and you have that same nagging question. Maybe there was an argument that took place over this week that you still feel guilty about. Uh, maybe there is a besetting sin that you keep returning to. Maybe you're saying 2024 is the year that this holds me down no more. Maybe you're scared to pray or to open your Bible because you feel like an absolute failure. And the same thing that is true of those who could look upon that sacrifice and know they are forgiven is true of you. That you can look upon Christ, sacrifice on your behalf, and because of his cleansing blood, know that your sins are forgiven. And you are right with a holy God. And that is why it is good news that Jesus, our Savior, celebrated Passover as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The second action that reveals Jesus' true identity is that Jesus worshipped in his Father's house as the Son of God. Jesus worshipped in his Father's house as the Son of God. When we get to verse 43, we read that when the feast was ended... As they were returning, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents did not know it. Uh, now, Passover would take place on one day, and then the next seven days were the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So uh, Jesus' family stayed for the entire week, at least, to celebrate, and then when the feast was ended, they went back. Uh, typically in this time, they would travel in a caravan of people. And the way that these caravans were structured as they walked is it was typically the women and the children were at the front leading, and then all of the men in the family, they would stay in the back. And so with Jesus kind of in this in-between stage at 12 years old, could it be the case that Mary, as she's walking, she doesn't see Jesus, but she's like, you know, this is like he's 12 years old, 
He's probably walking with the other guys. He's walking with his dad. And then Joseph is thinking, you know, well, he's, I mean, he's not 13 yet. Maybe he's with his mom. Maybe he's with the other kids. And they're you know, out front. Well, they go a day's journey. So, so they're traveling like, you know, 30, 30 miles. And uh, they stop that night. They, you know, get around the campfire or whatever else happens. And uh, they can't find Jesus. And so they're like, oh, no. And so uh, frantically, what they're going to do is they're going to go back um, and, and travel another day's journey. And what we read is that three days later, they found Jesus. Now, this is probably not three days of searching. Uh, this is probably counting the first day of travel when he wasn't with them, counting that, and then the next day of travel, getting back to Jerusalem. And then the third day, they're looking for Jesus, and they find him in the temple. Now, I mean, this is, this is just interesting. As a parent, you, you kind of know the thought process that goes into this. Your mind immediately jumps into worst case scenarios. Um, I've, never, I've never lost a child, so, uh, you know, I, I, hope I, I hope I don't. But, you know, you're just like, where, where, where do you look? Where do you go? Um, and I'm just thinking, if you're looking for a 12-year-old, where do you expect them to be? I uh, think about all the places that I and my, and my 12-year-old self would have been if I was completely free of parental supervision, and it's probably not church, okay? Um, I'm like, I would be like trying to get into trouble or, you know, whatever, and uh, well, here, Jesus, he is, he is found in the temple, and what he's going to say is, yes, I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you know that I would be worshiping in my father's house? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know where you would have found me if you were searching for me? And it's interesting that we find him there uh, because this would have also been kind of when the, the who's who of uh, Jewish teachers and rabbis would have been gathered in Jerusalem and among all of the other teachers in the temple. Uh, it reminds me of one of my first semesters at seminary. It was before we had moved to Louisville and I was taking like January term classes where uh, they cram an entire semester's worth of class from eight to five, Monday through Friday. It is brutal, uh, but you get like all your, all your three hours of credit just in right there. Um, and so we were there, uh, me and my friend David, this was 2012, January of 2012. Okay. Um, so we're there and uh, there was this class, the you know, the seminary campus is pretty empty in January because there are only a couple classes that are offered. And we had a brief break, so I run to the bathroom, me and my friend David are there, and then unexpectedly a tornado warning goes off. And we're like, oh no, and we're this place is completely unfamiliar, like what do we do? And so uh, we're coming out of the bathroom and then a security guard is there and he's like, hey, everybody's going into the basement right now, like they're coming over the PA system and they're like, you need to get to safety. And so um, what we had done is we had come down the hallway next to Dr. Moeller's office because we knew that everybody else from our class was like gonna be over in like the main classroom area. So we'd like jetted over here. Well, then we came out and he just like, you know, rips us down into the basement door, like right there. And so we go down and to my surprise, it was like the spiritual hall of famers of my, like my theological mind. Okay. So, uh, if you, if you are a nerd like me, then you know that, uh, every couple of years they do this thing called together for the gospel, uh, where it's like this conference, they bring in some of the, the greatest preachers of all time 
And so I go down into the basement and I turn the corner and there is a circle of like everybody that I listen to their podcast. It was like uh, Dr. Moeller, it was John Piper, um, Kevin DeYoung, David Platt, Matt Chandler, uh, Mark Dever. Like you, you probably don't know who these people are, but just know it was like a really big deal for me, okay? And so, so I'm standing there and I'm just like starstruck. And me and my friend David are like, and, uh, and so we're there and, you know, it's like, I was like thinking, do I have a picture of this? And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm 33. Like that, like picture phones had the quality of like, you know, nothing at that point. So no, I don't have a picture of this. You're just gonna have to take my word for it. Um, but I was like, this is such an amazing opportunity. Like, what do I say to these guys? Like, that's like memorable or like to get them to like recognize me or something. Um, absolutely nothing. Okay. I like... They, they were continuing a conversation that apparently they had already started about this great conference that they were leading. And so we're in the basement together. And it was not going to be the time that I just tried to like wow them with something from my like quiet time devotion that morning. You know, I'm not going to be like, hey, Matt, like, what are you preaching on? Like, I've got like this little nugget for you. You know, like, I'm just not, I'm not about to do that. All right. But think about this moment where Jesus is like among those guys of his day, right? All of the rabbis from the surrounding towns and villages had come in, like so the, the greatest like preachers and interpreters of the law, and they'd come in, they're in the temple, and they're like discussing all of the, you know, hot, hot button issues that, uh, you know, like get like debates and all that kind of stuff. And they're like working through the, the commands of the law. And then, and then Jesus at 12 years old, is like, hey, you know what? This is actually what, what, what I think is going on here. And he explains it. And they're just like amazed at his understanding of the law. That's, that's amazing, isn't it? And, and what we find here is that Jesus is super knowledgeable, right? He's, he's able to am, amaze them with what he's saying about the, the law. But then he's also asking questions. And here we, we find ourselves in this great mystery of the incarnation. So, so Jesus, truly God, son of God, retaining all the attributes of his Godhead is omniscient. Jesus, the man, the 12-year-old boy, is asking questions. He's learning, he's growing. He's immutable, he never changes. And his Godhead is the eternal son of God. And yet, he's, he's growing, he's learning, he's developing. Now, how do, how do these things become congruent? And, and you might think, okay, this is, uh, you know, are, are we really about to get into doctrine of Christ and Christological doctrine? And I would say, absolutely. Right? This, is, this is extremely important. Now, uh, recently, Lifeway Research did a study that showed that um, only 41% of America's population believe that Jesus existed as the Son of God eternally before he took on flesh and was born of Virgin Mary, which means that roughly 59%, six out of 10 people, uh, believe some Christological heresy, believe something about Christ that is not true. And you might think, well, is, you know, that's really just kind of for like the preachers and theologians and scholars to figure out, but here's the deal. Believing the wrong thing about Jesus is like, 
having, having the wrong phone number or the wrong account number to your bank account, right? If you, if you miss a little bit, of it, it's, it's off. It's like, you know, thinking that you're about to drink a refre- refreshing glass of water that has a single drop of poison in it. What, what might seem like a small discrepancy to some can be eternally destructive for all. And so it's worth thinking through. It's worth even thinking about the historical belief of the church whenever it comes to a passage like this. Uh, I want to give you four heresies that exist and, and then the truth that we believe whenever it comes to Jesus as he's revealed not only in this passage but throughout, throughout the entire Bible. Uh, the first is docetism, all right? This, this is the heresy that believes that Jesus just kind of looked like he took on flesh. Uh, so think of like a, a really believable hologram, all right? But if Jesus didn't take on flesh, then he can't truly relate to us. So we, we deny that. The, the next heresy that, that exists is the one of monophysitism. It's this idea that, and I'm not gonna make you say that 10 times fast, but it's the idea that Jesus had one nature or that his nature was just kind of blended, uh, that he was not truly human, he was not truly God, but maybe he was, he was just God, or maybe he was just human. Uh, another heresy that is believed is adoptionism, right? So that Jesus was just born as a normal guy, right? And then uh, God, on his throne in heaven, thought about all the great people that might be a good fit to be adopted as his son, and then he chose Jesus, right? Like... Um, whenever you're playing football in gym class and there are two captains and you're just kind of choosing people, that God was somehow like, okay, this is the guy I'm going to adopt to accomplish my purposes. And that's, that's a heresy. That is not true. Next is Nestorianism. Uh, Nestorianism is the idea that Jesus uh, had a human nature and had a, the nature of God both in one body, but that they, they were independent of one another. Uh, they weren't unified together in one person. And so what do we believe? We believe that Jesus is truly God, fully God in every way, truly man, fully man in every way as one who took on flesh, united in one indivisible person. Uh, the, the, the truth that we hold is called the hypostatic union, that Jesus is truly God, truly man, fully God, fully man in one flesh. And we Read this in John 1.14. We could go to other passages, but for the sake of time, we'll just look at this one. That the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That the pre-existing eternal son of God took on flesh to become like us, to do what we could not do for ourselves. So as the son, he is omnipresent. And yet in his physical body, he inhabited a specific time and place that as the Son of God, He is all-sufficient, completely independent, and yet in His humanity, He experienced exhaustion, hunger, thirst, that Christ became man for us. Now, in 451, to try to extinguish the fire of some of these heresies that were breaking out, uh, the church got together and held a council Uh, It's where the Chalcedonian Creed comes from. Now, the great thing about looking at creeds is that it is different denominations of churches coming together and saying, let's cement 
in writing what the church has always believed, okay? So if anybody ever tells you, oh, well, you know, the council came together and they decided that this is what the church would believe about Jesus. No, they are protecting the church from drifting away from the, from the truth that they have always believed. And they wrote this, Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead, Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood, like us in all respects apart from sin, as regards his Godhood begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristic, this is important, the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated in two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God the Word, Lord Jesus Christ." even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. So what we see here is that Jesus, fully God, takes on human flesh and during his incarnation takes on the limitations of humanity while retaining his full godhood. So how was Jesus able to go into the temple? and learn and ask questions and yet have this knowledge that seems like it could only come from God. Um, I owe a lot of my thinking on this subject to R.C. Sproul, uh, a great pastor and theologian who has since gone to be with the Lord. And, and he says, imagine what it would be like as a 12-year-old to be completely without sin, to not have the same distractions and uh, sinful desires that take us away from having an affection fixed on the Lord. And think about how you would know him, right? In, any knowledge that Jesus had in his humanity was imparted to him through the revelation of God the Father, uh, through his divine nature, or through his, um, through his empowering of the Holy Spirit within him, but as we think about this passage, we also have to understand that Jesus took on flesh and took on the limitation of human flesh while completely retaining his deity, that he would become like us. And so here, whenever we see him in the temple, uh, we do not want to be guilty of dividing the, the nature of his humanity and the nature of his deity, and yet we see here that he is a human just like us. And so while there um, is a lot of mystery, there are certainly guardrails about what we believe in understanding who Jesus was. This passage will tell us that even though Jesus is going to declare who he is, this was still a mystery to Mary and Joseph in many ways. Why? Because they, whenever they return and they see Jesus, verse 48, his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. 
They did, they did not understand completely whenever he says, I must be in my father's house. And she's saying, how could you do this to me and your father? And what he's saying is, mom, I love you. And, and he acknowledged Joseph as his adoptive father and loves him. But his ultimate allegiance was to his true father, God the father. So he says, I must be about the things of my father. But look at his response, the third action of Jesus. Jesus obeyed as the fulfillment of God's law. They couldn't fully comprehend who Jesus was. And yet, how does Jesus respond in verse 51? After he's confronted by his mom, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Um, I mean, just... Just think about this. Jesus isn't looking for loopholes. Uh, he, you know, he's, he's respectful. He obeys the fifth commandment here by obeying his mom and dad, even as the son of God. He's in the temple, and yet whenever Mary and Joseph come to get him, he says, okay, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'll go back to Nazareth with you. Uh, just, just think about Jesus's obedience to the law here, his obeying of the commands, his humility. I mean, have you ever had someone try to give you advice about something where you're just like, I know more than them about this thing that they're trying to instruct me on. Like imagine being Jesus, the son of God, and he is the, he's the firstborn of Mary and Joseph. We know they're really young. Like, you know, could you, could you imagine, like, you know, think about all the mistakes that you make with your firstborn kid that you're like, oh, we are not doing that with our second or third kid, you know? And then like Jesus was like experienced all of that. And yet he's submissive. He obeys. And then we're told in his adolescent years, verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and grew in favor with God and man. The three actions of Jesus accomplish two things. First, the Son of God accomplishes and applies the will of God for our good. How do you apply a text like this? I want you to see that Jesus accomplishes and applies the will of God for our good. Whenever Jesus was on earth, his will was to do the will of the Father. That's what he desired to do. In John 6, 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Uh, he says, whenever he's in the temple, I must be about my Father's things. It, the Greek there is literally, I must be in the things of my Father. Uh, and so the interpreters here help us understand by saying, I must be in my Father's house. He is concerned with the things of God the Father. And this is good news for us because the will of God for Jesus Christ was that he would perfectly obey, that he would go to the cross and take the penalty of sin on our behalf, that he would be raised again to give us life, that he would ascend to heaven and uphold the universe, that he would even now intercede on your behalf Jesus accomplishes the work of his Father for your good, applying the blood that he shed for you, forgiving the sin that you have committed. This is why Romans 8, 34, Paul looks at the Christian and says, who can condemn you? Who? Have you condemned yourself this week because of the sins that you've committed? Did you walk in this morning condemned? But Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christ in this very moment, on this Sunday morning, is accomplishing the will of God on your behalf and for your good. John says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. God the Father sent Christ the Son to accomplish his will for your good. 
to give you an advocate in heaven based upon his work on earth. This reveals the will of God for you, his love for you, his care for you, his sustaining of you, even in your most difficult moments. Second, Jesus models holy affections for God. You see, Jesus loved being in the house of his father. And he wasn't referring to his adoptive father, Joseph. He was referring to God the Father. And he models a love and affection that is for God. In the book that was written by Don Whitney that I highly encourage you to read at the beginning of this year is 10 questions to diagnose your spiritual health. And the first question is, do you thirst for God? Do you have an affection for God? Do you hunger for God? Do you desire the presence of God? You see, God gives this desire to every Christian, this thirst, not to make us miserable, but to lead us to himself, who is the greatest satisfier, the only satisfier that there is. John Piper said, a spring satisfies thirst. Think about this. A spring, a fountain, it satisfies thirst, not by removing the need that you have for water, but by being there to give you water whenever you get thirsty again and again. God is this spring. And you have a holy thirst given to you so that you would come to him again and again. Is that why you came to worship this morning? To sing with the people of God? To pray with the people of God? To sit under the word of God? Because you thirst for God. You have holy affections for him. This is why you long to pray with your spouse and over your children. This is why you want to wake up a little bit earlier in 2024 than you did in 2023. Because you want to pick up the word of God before you scroll through Instagram. Do you, do you want to use the gifts and skills that God has given you this year, not just to make more money in the workplace, but to build up and serve your church family? Uh, do you wanna take the, the money that God has entrusted to you and give it to eternal things? Maybe use it to go on an international mission trip this year to serve people in hard to reach places. Maybe you'd say, you know what? This begins with me. A holy affection begins by, by simply making my faith public through baptism, through becoming an active part of a church family and not just kind of floating or hopping around, but to be in a place where I, where I know people and where I'm known by people. Maybe for some of you, the answer to this question about holy affections, about longing for the things of the Lord begins with trying to, to figure out some of the distractions in your life that are getting in the way of you truly loving the Lord as you want to. I think one of the most unexpected parts of this story is that Mary and Joseph grew up with Jesus and yet failed to see who he was. And may that not be the case of us. May we see who Jesus is in this passage and may we see that he is the son of God and savior that we long for. The purpose of this story is so that one more person would declare that Jesus is Lord. It's been said by the angels. It's been seen by the shepherds. It was prophesied by Simeon and Anna. Jesus himself has said it. Will you say it? Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. You see, the gospel is Jesus in my place. And the good news is that you don't have to travel to Jerusalem because Jesus did. You don't have to make a sacrifice because Jesus did. And you can call God Father because Jesus did. There's, a, there's another family that is marked by memorable stories, and it is this one. The people of God who acknowledge the Son of God and have a holy affection for him. Let's pray.